Thank you so much, Brother Rasmussen. God bless you this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke in chapter number 24. Luke chapter number 24 in your Bible, and I'd like to begin reading this morning in verse number 5. It's certainly an honor and a privilege to be at West Coast Baptist College this morning to open God's precious word. I'm thankful that God has led you here with a heart to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do. It, you know, it's very rare anymore when I'm in a church and I ask, especially seniors, juniors in high school, what are you going to do with your life? And it's always this, 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 that, that, that. And uh, the other day I was preaching in Missouri and, and a young lady said, when I asked that question, just, I don't know, just whatever the Lord wants me to do. And, you know, wake up in the morning, Lord, I'll do anything today. I'll go anywhere today, whatever you want. It'll never fail. Thank the Lord. He's still in the business of using people. And it's why it makes this morning such a great encouragement to see men and ladies with a heart for the will of God and a heart to serve the Lord. Thank you as well, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, everywhere I go, I hear kind of once, once or twice, a little belly aching about California, but that's the answer. Uh, Brother Weaver and I were talking before the service, and he was talking about a city in California. And, and he was talking to, with the preacher, Brother Chapel, about that. Brother Chapel, what are you going to do about it? Well, what are you going to do about it? And it's one thing to complain, but there's an answer. And you just never know. Somebody starts praying for California. It's amazing how the Lord might lead you to go start a church or help a church plant in California. It's amazing how those two things go together. I appreciate that so much. You have your Bible this morning to the book of Luke in chapter 24. Two angels have been dispatched from heaven to an empty sepulcher. Uh, of course, the angels appear as men, and more often than not in the Bible, when angels are dispatched to the earth, they appear as men. And we always look at this story through the eyes of the ladies who show up that morning. But have you ever thought about what it must have been like for these angels? I can see them pounding on the stone walls, looking at each other. What is this place? Because where they come from, they don't have one of these. And now as these angels are inside the sepulcher, absolutely stunned, what is this place? What is that stone? What is, what is this? All of a sudden, if they weren't shocked before, they are stunned now. We always think of the ladies as being astonished. Well, these angels must have been as well. For in Luke chapter 24, verse number 5, And as they, the ladies, were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they, the angels, said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified him the third day, rise again. And they remembered his words. The angels are stunned. Excuse me. Excuse me, ladies, what are you looking for? You know, there are a lot of places where Jesus could be this Sunday morning, but there is one place and one place alone where he absolutely positively cannot be. He cannot be in that sepulcher. And yet the ladies have showed up that morning with their spices and their perfumes and the angels are stunned. Excuse me, ladies, what are you doing here? Don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? Or... Aren't his words enough? Lord Jesus, help us from the mighty words of God. Thank you for what we've heard sung already today, the great reminder of Calvary. May the love of Calvary be the power behind our desire to say, I want to serve my Savior with my life, with my all. I pray you'd use the word of God to build strong convictions in our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. And for the record, they came to a sepulcher. 
Now, that's fascinating to me. Not long ago, I was just studying this text, and, and it just, just seemed to leap right out of the pages, the word sepulcher. Because there are 32 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in my Bible where the Word of God tells us that Jesus is placed in a sepulcher. No, it never says, not in my Bible, it never says they put Jesus in a tomb or in a grave. 32 times sepulcher. And one more time for good measure in the book of Acts. And that was a stunning thing to me. And, and as I took a little deeper look into that word, it became fascinating to realize that, that in New Testament times, the word came from the root word meaning to remember. And all of a sudden, it turns powerful, doesn't it? Because around the world, religious people will spend multiplied millions of dollars to go visit the tombs of the prophets. Why, for the Muslim, after you have gone to Mecca, the second most important place to go is the tomb of Muhammad. I, how many people in pagan Eastern religions go to visit the tombs of the dead? In fact, if I could use the term this morning, even in pagan Christianity, why they honor the relics and the bones and the tombs of the dead. I was on the island of Crete a few months ago, and sure enough, and Herculon Crete, of course Crete, the island where Titus was sent. You can walk into a massive house of religion and of course in front of you there's all the artwork, all the altars, the rest of it. But there's this little hallway down the side and, and if you make your way down the hallway in a little room there's a round whatever, a red round whatever and in that red round whatever is allegedly the head of Titus. Now, I don't know if Titus's head is in there or not. I'm pretty certain Titus would say, forget about that. Let me tell you where I really am at. But, you know, that's what religion does. Religion loves the graves. They love the tombs. They love those things. But when it comes to my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, multiplied millions of people have spent multiplied billions of dollars to go visit a sepulcher that is empty. Every time you see that word sepulcher, you remember this is not a grave of the dead. It is not a tomb carrying bones. That word sepulcher reminds us it's a memorial to remember the greatest Sunday morning in world history when the Lord Jesus Christ walked out of that sepulcher. I don't know what we're going to do with all the music. Then again, I was never a music major. That's the music guy's problem. Lo, in the sepulcher we lay, Jesus, up from the sepulcher he arose. It's easier to preach than sing, what can I tell you? But, but my Savior in a sepulcher, and now the sepulcher is empty. And early that morning, the ladies, and the idea is at the crack of dawn they have arrived. The ladies have come with their spices and their perfumes and their ointments. The Jews in that day did not practice embalming. After three days to slow the stench and the decomposition, I, loved ones would come and anoint the body. The ladies have spent an enormous amount of money purchasing these spices. You talk about wasted money. When they show up at the crack of dawn, there's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Mary the mother of James. If you can keep the Mary straight, good for you. I mean, there's Salome, there's uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa. They have all showed up at the sepulcher and all they're going to discover is there's no one there. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Excuse me, ladies, don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? What are you looking for this morning? I, I know we're not supposed to do this in Luke chapter 24, but quite frankly, Frankly, the ladies are getting an earful, and they're not the only ones that are going to get an earful on this morning. Excuse me, ladies, what are you expecting to find? Don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? Well, for the record, when he was yet in Galilee, this is how he did it a week or two earlier. 
He said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written in the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, shall be mocked, spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And that wasn't the only time. There are at least four other times where the Lord Jesus looked in their eyeballs and said, on the third day I will rise again. Like Jonah, three days, three nights, I will rise again. Excuse me, what part of I will rise again don't you seem to understand? What else is it going to take? And if he told us that recorded in our Bible five times, then there's no telling, is there? Because if everything Jesus said, and if everything Jesus did had been written down, you wouldn't be able to walk through the door holding the book. It is so many things he preached and so many things that he did. So if you and I have it recorded five plus times, then how many times did Jesus look in the eyeballs of his followers and say, three days I will rise again? So what are you doing here this morning? What have you possibly come to see? Excuse me, ladies. Aren't his words enough? You say, well, come on. Aren't you giving him a little bit of a hard time? And I might be except for one little problem. And that little problem's in Matthew 27 and 28, where the Bible tells us that the religious establishment, a.k.a. the scribes, the Pharisees, they went to Mr. Pontius Pilate and said, we remember what that deceiver said. He said when he was in Galilee that he would rise again. So how come the unsaved religious establishment had it figured out, but these ladies didn't? What are you doing here this morning? There's a lot of places he can be, but he cannot be here. Aren't his words enough? Well, needless to say, the ladies run, and there's a little bit of guesser work, I think. It's not exactly laid out the proper order, and, and so Mary Magdalene was there. You know, however that works out, heaven will give us the perfect timeline. And the ladies are going to run, and they go find the disciples in verse number 11. The disciples possibly were in the same room where they had the supper a few nights earlier. It is thought by many that was the first home of the first New Testament church in Jerusalem. So regardless, the ladies know right where to go, and they come running to the disciples and of course you can just imagine Joanne and the wife of Chusa and you can just imagine Salome and this Mary, that Mary, up Mary, down Mary and all the Marys are saying he rose again, he rose again, he rose again. All their words are joined together and we don't even need to read the verse, right? Because after all, assembled in that room are the spiritual giants. No, no, I know, I know they were spiritual because they told us. A few nights earlier, they were having a big debate. I mean, the big debate was which one of them was the greatest of them all, right? Oh, okay, Elijah, step aside. Good job, Moses, but thank you. Thanks for your labor. Take a parting prize. Oh, good job there, Abraham. Well done, Daniel. But Peter, James, and John are arriving. So the rest you can just step aside because the greatest of the greatest are here. That's the discussion they're having a few nights earlier. So obviously when these ladies come, we don't have to read the verse, do we? I mean, the disciples are going to look at these ladies and say, what's your problem? I mean, of course he's not there. I mean, you almost can hear the message coming out from the mouths of these giants. How could he be there? Because he said that he would rise again. So we don't even have to look at the verse, right? These spiritual giants are really going to rebuke the ladies. Not exactly. In verse number 11, their words seem to them as idle tales. As idle tales. 
That word comes out of their medical world. And when somebody was coming out of anesthesia, they'd start babbling incoherently. Those babbling words were called idle tales. In other words, when these ladies come with not only the greatest announcement of all time, but also the most obvious thing. I mean, could there be anything that was more obvious, more definite than this? I mean, breaking news. Jesus kept his word. Who would have thought? And the ladies come with the most obvious statement in world history, and the disciples pretty much look at him and say, ladies, you're crazy. Idle tales. And if that wasn't enough, in verse number 12, then arose Peter, and we know that John's running right with him, and ran under the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed. So Peter's got to see it for himself, and he and John, it kind of seems they're in a race that they never got over. And John could always say, I got there first, and Peter said, I went inside first, and, and there are the linen clothes laid, not thrown into the corner. These are not the bandages that are stripped away. Jesus went right through those clothes, and they're still laying there, just like he went right through the wall of the sepulcher, just like he would go right through the wall of the building. And the linen clothes are laid there, and well, what do you know? Uh, I'm sure the Bible's going to tell us that Peter broke out into a chorus of Christ the Lord is risen today. Not exactly. The Bible says in verse number 12 that he departed wandering in himself. At that which it really, you're wondering in yourself? And what are you going to get from that? Here, Peter scratches his head. I wonder what happened here today. What happened here today? What happened here today? Jesus did precisely what he said he was going to do, and he did it precisely when he said he was going to do it. And these disciples, Peter's walking away, scratching his head, thinking, I wonder what happened here. And that is exactly the result of wandering in ourselves. He said, well, if you're not going to wander in yourself, what should you do? You could always study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, because you and I have a choice to make. Either we are going to find truth down here in our hearts, or we're going to find truth down here in our Bible. And there's this little scary thing that says, my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Where are you going to go for truth? Peter's not going to be the last guy wandering in his heart. What could have happened here today? What's your problem, Mary, 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 Mary? What's your problem, uh, 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 Miss Wife Achusa? Excuse me, what's your problem, Salome? What's your problem, Peter? What's your problem, John? Don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? He said it again and again and again and again and again. Don't you remember what he said? Aren't his words enough? Well, things are about to go from bad to worse. The Word of God tells us two people are making their way from Jerusalem to the little village of Emmaus. Really? This is what you're going to do on resurrection morning. It is the greatest day in world history without exception. It is the one single day above them all. It is the pivot day of all world history. Everyone before looked to this day. Everyone now looks back to that day. It is the single greatest day. And this guy, Cleopas, and somebody else... Decide, yeah, this would be a good day to go to Emmaus. What are you doing? I mean, by now, Pierce is getting a little later in the day. What are you doing? 
What are, you, what are you going to do in Emmaus? Why in the world would you leave Jerusalem on the day of all days when the greatest thing that ever happened is taking place and somebody thinks it's a good idea to go to Emmaus? And by the way, the Word of God identifies poor Cleopas and there was another one and the Word of God never gives them a name. Now that doesn't stop the experts from telling us who it was. Uh, studying this text, I think I came up with 32 different names. Uh, you know, that was Mark or that was Dr. Luke or that was this guy or that guy. 30-something, but I, have the, I know the answer to the question, who was, with doc, uh, who was with Cleopas? I know this. It is not a possible answer. It, is not a, it could be perhaps an No, no, this is the definitive answer. Who was with Cleopas? And the answer is, I don't know. And the only answer is, you don't know. And especially the scholars don't know. And you know how I know I know and you don't know and you don't know and they don't know? Because the Bible doesn't say. However, if everybody else is going to call, I'm going to give him a title. I call the other guy the luckiest guy in the Bible. Now, I don't even like the word lucky, but I don't even know another word. You know why? Because 10,000 years from now when we're in heaven and Jesus gets around to preaching Luke 24 and we are in heaven listening to the word of God, teach the word of God, boy, is that going to be something. I mean, on that day when we get to the text, every eye in glory is going to start looking at Cleopas. And there's going to be somebody else in heaven who's just as guilty and nobody knows who it is. <laughs> you ever imagine? I, I mean, here we're walking down the street, Brother Rasmus and I talking, and oh, hey, there's old Brother Cleopas. How'd it work that day? On What are you doing, Cleopas? And there's somebody who's just going to be walking around heaven with a smile this big. Or in other words, I've done plenty of dumb things in my life. And maybe you got one or two things you're not too proud of. The good news is when Jesus comes, all of our dumb gets left behind. Unless you did something dumb and it's in the Bible. It's never going away. Forever and forever. That's why I call him the luckiest guy in the Bible because unless Cleopas rats him out, we'll never know who it is. So Cleopas and the luckiest guy, the Bible, for some reason decide this is a good day to go to Emmaus. And what do you know? This is getting to be a disease. In verse number 15, it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned. I mean, they probably had a, you know, stopped off at a coffee place and got a coffee and started having a, a study. And they're reasoning in their minds. This is never going to end well. A little bit later, the Bible says they're incredibly sad. Of course they are. If all we're going to do is just reason and think, and my mind is the ultimate authority, I'm going to wind up sad, discouraged, defeated, broken, messed up, or even worse. And the Bible tells us that they're doing this. And in verse number 15, what do you know? Jesus himself drew near and went with him. Well, that's going to fix it. Except the Bible says in verse 16, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. You say, well, doesn't that seem kind of cruel? No, it's biblical. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. The problem is this Mary, that Mary, the other Mary, while Joanna, the wife of Jesus, Salome, Peter, John, Cleopas, and the luckiest guy in the Bible, they have made the choice to walk by sight and not by faith. And it's amazing how many things are clouded, how many things are hidden, until we finally run to the Bible and say, let the word of God be so. So their eyes are hidden. And you know what happens over the next few verses? Uh, you know, what can I tell you? I grew up halfway between Boston and New York. I think this stuff is hilarious. Because for the next four verses, Cleopas tells Jesus everything that happened to him over the last three days. You know what I want to see? I want to see the video, right? 
And when I see the video, because, you know, maybe there's a DVD and... Okay, in heaven, it's up in the cloud. I get that. But, but I, I want to see the video. And you know what I really... I want to see the face of Jesus. As Cleopas is explaining everything that he did for the last... Oh, was that right? Oh, then that happened. Oh, really? Then, then what? Oh, yeah. I just want to see the face of Jesus. Sorry. That's the cynical New England in me. What can I tell you? And, and after a bit, look what it comes to in verse 21. Cleopas tells Jesus, and beside all this, today is the third day. Since the, he's just quoting the Bible. He is quoting what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee. I mean, don't you think that, that when he said those two words, third day, the alarm on his phone should have sounded, and all of a sudden Cleopas's eyes should have opened up wide and said, yeah, the third day, the third day. Something was supposed to happen on the third day. When he was yet in Galilee, he told us what would happen the third day. He's quoting what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee, but because he is following the reasoning of his feeble human heart, he doesn't see it. Well, you know the story in verse number 22, yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished when they were at early at the sepulcher and when they found not his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And now in verse 25, the Lord Jesus is going to give it to him. And one more time, we are getting an earful. I know we're all supposed to be happy, glory to God, singing and shouting in Luke 24. But so far, there's been no singing and shouting and glory to God and hallelujahs and cantatas or anything else. There has been nothing but unbelief. In verse 25, he said unto them, O fools, an incredibly strong word. You're lacking discernment. There are stronger words, but this one says you lack discernment. You haven't added it up. Oh, fools, and how do you add it up? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's incredibly powerful, this words in verse 28. Ought not, ought not. That means there's no other possibility. There could be no other outcome. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. Right. What's your problem? What else could have happened today except Jesus rise again? Don't you remember what he said? So how is Jesus going to fix the problem? How is he going to deal with Cleopas and the luckiest guy in the Bible? I noticed that he didn't say, turn around and run and see the sepulcher for yourself. He didn't say, you need a vision, you need an encounter, you need an experience of your own. He didn't say you need a sign and you need a wonder and you need a miracle. He didn't say you need a dream or you need a vision. The Bible tells us that Jesus looked at him in verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave him the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Started at Genesis. And I got to tell you, preaching on the Old Testament, especially Christ in the Old Testament, is one of the richest, most glorious things a guy can do. It is more fun. It does not work when you're preaching Christ in the Old Testament. But Brother Rasmussen, can you imagine how many times as Jesus is going from Genesis to Malachi, he came to texts and stories and verses, and yeah, we'd be, I never saw that. I never saw that. Jesus didn't say you need a new vision, a new experience of your own. He didn't say you need to, with your eyes, see an empty sepulcher. He said what you need is the Bible. 
They finally arrive in the city of Emmaus and, and the Lord Jesus breaks bread. He gives it to them. And, and in verse number 31, their eyes are open. Jesus vanishes out of their sight. So in verse number 32, their life is changed. And you know what Cleopas is going to report? You know what Cleopas is going to say made the difference? I mean, you and I might think, wow, he saw Jesus with his eyes. That must have been the thing. Or, you know, I mean, he saw Jesus break bread. That must have done it. And he saw Jesus vanish out of their sight. Certainly that is experience must have changed these men. But in verse number 20, uh, 32, they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, not visions, not dreams, not go take a trip, not have an encounter, not take a pilgrimage. He didn't say you need to have signs and wonders and miracles. He didn't say you need a new feeling. He said, what you need to do is get your nose in the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Aren't his words enough? We need something else. Aren't his words enough? So the Word of God tells us in verse number 36, Cleopas and the luckiest guy in the Bible come to the same place in Jerusalem. They take a U-turn. They go back. And, and now you know, the Bible says two or three witnesses, right? Two, three if it's a big case. Well, they, we've blown that one out of the water. We got this Mary, that Mary, her Mary, him Mary. We got all these Marys. We got Salome, and then we've got uh, Joanna. We've got Peter. We've got John. We got Cleopas. We got the luckiest guy in the Bible. And in verse number 36, as they thus spoke, okay, this will fix the problem. At last we can get to the joy of resurrection day. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And with the classic Jewish greeting, peace be unto the, that's going to fix the problem, right? So we don't even need to go to the next verse, do we? Obviously, it says, and they all fell upon their faces. They worshiped him. They say, glory to God, Christ the Lord is risen today. I mean, obviously, that's going to be the reaction because, you know, Joanna, her husband's chooser, kind of works for Herod. And, and you know, we know Mary Magdalene, and, you know, she kind of got a reputation. And, you know, Peter's, eh, you never know about Peter and John. I mean, uh, and it, no, forget it. This is in humans now. Jesus himself. They see him with their eyes. That'll fix it. Except the Bible tells us in verse 37, they were terrified and affrighted. Affrighted is terrified on steroids. They are shocked. They're scared to death. They supposed they had seen a spirit. So in verse 39, Jesus said, Behold my hands and my feet, that as I myself handle me, handle me. Come on, you've seen me with your eyes, touch me with your hands. If that's what you need, you see me, you touch me, you hear me. Isn't that enough? I mean, Jesus himself is standing there talking to them, offering his hands to them, and they are trembling like little children, wondering who could that be? Aren't his words enough? Because if you want an encounter, this is an encounter for the ages. If you need an experience, nobody's going to beat this one. What is Jesus going to do? How about this? This will fix it, right? I know, this will take care of it. In verse 41, have you any meat? And they gave him, you better check your Bible. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. Do you know most modern Bibles erased the honeycomb for no good reason? I don't know why. No honeycomb. Say what you want. I like a Bible where you get to have dessert. Amen. If that was the only one, and believe me, it isn't, that's good enough for me. 
And right in front of them, Jesus eats the fish and the honeycomb. Excuse me, Casper doesn't eat lunch. Not that you would get that one. But you understand, right there, right there, handle me and see, it is I. Right there, he eats right in front of them. And yet nobody's on their face saying, Christ the Lord is risen. Because when people need experiences and encounters, dreams and visions, feelings, they'll never be satisfied. I mean, there's a reason Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh for signs. There's a reason in 1 Corinthians 1, at that New Testament church in Corinth, well, the Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jewish people, they wanted experiences and shows. But the Bible tells us it's not about signs. It's not about wonders. It's not about experiences. It's not about encounters. Because nobody ever had a sign or a wonder quite like Luke 24. And we're halfway through the chapter and you got to look around saying, excuse me, anybody out there that actually believe he rose again? Is there anybody? Because when it's signs and wonders and miracles and shows and games and dreams and feelings, you know what humans do? They just keep moving the goalpost. Uh, okay, that happened. Now I need that. And if that happens, I, need, I love when people say, yeah, Jesus needs to prove himself to me. I'll get saved when God proves himself to me. Really? You know, the person who says that is a phony. You know why? Because God already did take the first step. He commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now here is some obnoxious human who has never studied the scriptures to see what the Bible says, who somehow thinks God has to prove himself to me. He did. He took the first step and he gave his beloved begotten son to die on a cross for you. Now it's your job to search the, the balls in your court. He did prove himself. What are you going to do about it? That's why I remember in Luke 16, yeah, if Lazarus comes back from the dead, <laughs> my brother, I, he's not going to listen to Moses and the prophets. He's not going to listen to some preacher. But if Lazarus comes back from the dead, hey, they'll get saved. And Lazarus did rise from the dead seven days later, and all they did was say, we got to kill him and Jesus. No, it's not signs and wonders and visions and miracles and dreams. Aren't his words enough? So what is Jesus going to do? I mean, we got a real problem here. I mean, in, in a few days, right, 40 of them, the clock just started this morning. In 40 days, he's going to that mountain. He's going that way. And in 40 days, these jokers sitting in front of him, they're going to have to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And there's not a one of them that actually believe he rose again, even though Jesus himself is in front of their eyes. How is he going to fix the problem? And you know, I noticed Jesus didn't try anything new, and he didn't say we need something cool. He didn't say we need a new idea. But I'll show you what he did decide. Verse number 44. He said unto him, these are the words. These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So what does he do in 45? Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. How did he do it in verse 46? By preaching, thus it is written. It was written in the days of Moses, it stands today. It was written in the days of Isaiah, it stands today. It was written in the days of Daniel, it stands today. It was written in the days of Paul and it stands today. Thus it 
Exodus written. He didn't come up with something different. He didn't try to get them to like it. He didn't come up with some new plan. All he did was just give them the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, because if the Bible won't get it done, it's not going to get done. There is no plan B. Plan A is just give them the Bible, and plan B is go back to plan A. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. You got 40 days, and the clock is ticking. What are you going to do? Give them the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. This time, in addition to Moses and the prophets, he gave them the Psalms. I mean, he gave them the whole load, but he gave them the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not dreams and visions. It is not encounters and experiences. Is the Bible enough? Because you look at Luke 24, it ought to be the greatest chapter of all in the Bible, and it turns into a miserable one. It turns into a broken one. Because you look around and say, it doesn't seem like there's anybody. I mean, anybody who believed what he said when he was yet in Galilee. Aren't his words enough? And while I say there's nobody, there actually was somebody, wasn't there? Nope. For all the disciples, and you know, there was 20,000 that took a free meal. I don't mean those people. I mean the followers. And now you wonder, is there anyone who believes that Jesus did what he said he would do? And you and I walk away from Luke 24 shaking our head saying, this is broken. This is heartbreaking. you got to be kidding me. They ought to be singing and shouting and tears ought to be flowing. And, and all there is is unbelief. Was there anybody who actually believed what he said when he was yet in Galilee? And there was one. I only find one. And it was a few nights before Calvary where Jesus had an invitation to dinner in the house of a man named Simon the leper. You'd think we could also think of him as Simon the former leper. And the Bible tells us as they sat to eat, of course, of course, Martha served. You know, I've heard people give Martha a hard time. I never do. I know Mary chose the better thing, but serving the Lord's a pretty good thing to do. And I say, if you want to rip on Martha, go ahead. Just don't hammer Martha with your mouth full. That's all that I say. I thank the Lord for the Marthas out there serving God, but Mary was special. And suddenly that day, that night, she takes a pound of ointment of spikenard. For a lot of reasons you can study, you'll hear in class, that was incredibly valuable. One verse says precious, one verse says costly. I mean, if you run the numbers for us today, and it's hard to do this, but for us today, this bottle of perfume would be worth about 50 grand. And then she pours it on the body of Jesus. And, and, you know, we think, wow, what a gift. And it was. But far more impressive was what comes next, where she gets on her knees. And this woman takes her glory, her hair, and she dries the feet of Jesus. I mean, it would be impossible for a woman to do an act that was more humbling than that. So this gift is incredible because of its value. It's incredibly expensive. More than that, it's an incredible gift because... Of the humility, Mary gives her all. And of course, Judas wasn't impressed. Mr. Treasurer said, <clears throat> Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Of course, you know and I know, and the Bible shines the light of truth, he couldn't care less about the poor. All he wanted was the money because he was a crook. So while we would expect that from a guy who's got his own spot in hell, what we don't expect is the reaction in Matthew and Mark. It wasn't just Judas, it was all of the disciples. And here's where we're going to have to get to heaven 
And we're going to have to see it in addition to read it. And we're going to have to hear it because we can read something, but you can't hear it. You don't get the passion. And I'm, I'm quite certain that the Lord Jesus rises, and I mean his voice probably rose faster than he did. And in no uncertain terms, he said it in different ways. Let her alone. She had done what she could. Jesus rises to her defense like no other place. And do you know the reason? Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus for his burial. Now you and I would think, on that Sunday morning, you know, this Mary, every Mary in the world shows up. Except for one. There's one Mary who didn't get there, Mary of Bethany. And you know, you and I would think from John 11 and multiple texts that Mary would be the first one there. Uh, Mary would show up earlier than everybody else, but she never comes. And do you know why she never comes? Because she had already anointed the body of Jesus. And do you know why she anointed the body of Jesus? Because in different texts, when Mary was at the feet of Jesus, do you know what it says? She was listening to his word. In other words, for Mary of Bethany, his word was enough. Now, I don't need to see an empty sepulcher because I know he's not there. I don't need to watch him eat dinner because I know he's alive. I don't need to get some encounter at a cafe in Emmaus because I know exactly what happened. At the feet of Jesus, she listened to his Bible. She listened to his words. And now here is Mary of Bethany saying, yep, I heard what he said. I believe what he said when he was yet in Galilee. And we say, what a lavish gift. No doubt, no doubt. You can preach on giving from that. He say, what a humbling gift. No doubt, no doubt. We can preach the rest of our lives on humility from her. But there's something far, far, far more important. She believed what he said when he was yet in Galilee. Lavish, yes. Humble, yes. But faith, she's the only one. Aren't his words enough? See, I'm thankful for to stand in the position of West Coast Baptist College because it's from Lancaster Baptist Church. And around here, I know I'm preaching at a school where the leadership believes and you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And around here you believe that the Bible is the preserved Word of God. And around here you believe that the Bible is the complete Word of God. But, is the Bible enough? Is it going to be a dream, a vision, an encounter, an experience? Or is the Bible enough? Aren't his words enough?